In episode 18 of the Well-Led Schools podcast, I'm joined by Violetta Zinakowski, where she shares powerful insights into what it really takes to feel a sense of emotional well-being and the importance of developing skills like self-awareness, emotional intelligence, and empathy in order to thrive in our emotional world. Stay tuned. Welcome to Well-Led Schools with Adrienne Hornby. On this podcast, we talk about all things staff well-being, school culture, and leadership. Join me for incredible and rich conversations with a range of experts who will give you tips, tricks, and inspiration to best support the well-being of the staff in your school and yourself. I'm your host, Adrienne Hornby, a health and wellbeing consultant and former school leader. I partner with schools across Australia to tailor and embed staff wellbeing action plans aimed at addressing staff burnout and building positive working environments. Welcome back to another episode of Well-Led Schools. Today I'm chatting with, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, Violetta Zinakowski a leadership, mentor, meditation and mindfulness teacher, holistic counsellor, experiential educator and the founder of Expand and Impact. Expand and Impact is an experiential education company that works with female professionals and entrepreneurs who want to challenge the status quo and create a new normal in how success and leadership looks and feels. Violetta's work and her background is quite fascinating and I couldn't think of a better guest to have on the podcast to chat all about emotional well-being today. Just remember, even if you are a male listening, while Violetta does mostly work with women, what she has to say definitely applies to both men and women. Emotional well-being really is essentially being able to accept and move with a wide range of emotional experiences we have been given in any day and, of course, in our lifetime. However, emotional well-being can be defined and explored from a few different angles, and we'll discuss some of those perspectives in today's episode. We'll also talk about how self-awareness and emotional intelligence play a huge role in our ability to feel emotionally well. Without these skills, it's very difficult to understand our inner world and feel connected to ourselves and the external world and indeed others that we work or socialize with. A particularly interesting point that came out of our conversation today is how many of us have a tendency to intellectualize our emotions versus actually feeling them. Because feeling our feelings is actually a somatic experience. It brings up sensations in our bodies that ideally we need to learn to sit with and accept. Violetta also shares some of the signs that your well-being particularly your emotional well-being, may require attention. Strategies to cultivate greater emotional intelligence as well as ways to connect more profoundly to your emotions through your physical body. So without further ado, let's dive right in. This episode is brought to you by our signature Well-Led Schools Partnerships 
a 12-month program that brings leaders and staff together to create a shared vision for their school and empowers them to create an action plan that leads to needle-moving changes in school culture and morale. Doors to our partnerships open only once per term. Stay updated on program openings and sign up for the waitlist at adriannehornby.com.au forward slash school hyphen partnerships. Thank you so much, Violet, for joining me. I'm really excited to chat with you today. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, we we were just catching up on how we don't live very far from each other, which is really nice. <laughs> Only a little hop, skip, and a du- jump down the down the road, technically. So <laughs> it's been really nice to to hear about somebody close by. Yeah, and the perfect weather that we experience all year round, definitely. Yeah, I know people <laughs> were listening to our conversation from down south. They probably <laughs> would switch off. <laughs> They'd be <Yeah>. jealous. <laughs> All right. Well, there's one question that I like to ask everybody when they come on to well-led schools, and that is, what is one thing do you like to do to look after or support your own health or well-being, Violet? I really love this question because I love the different answers people can get. You can really get an insight to what someone is passionate about, what someone likes, and what's important to them. And for me, one of the things that stands out to me when I think of what I do to support my own well-being is really connecting with the things that bring a deep sense of contentment to my heart, to my soul, to my mind. And personally, for me, that's nature. Mm -hmm. I love being out in nature. I love camping. I love outdoor sports and activities. And whenever I notice myself kind of getting caught up in the busyness of life, I've trained my own mind to remember where I feel the most settled and to schedule that in as soon as possible because it's the quickest thing to bring me back to myself. I love that. Is there a certain part of nature that you like more? Is it beach? Is it river? Is it bush? (laughs) Where is it for you? I think it depends on what I'm going through in life, if I'm honest, and like how my days are looking and what kind of challenges I'm experiencing. A lot of the time I love mountains because I love the challenges. I am really into rock climbing and bushwalking and snowboarding and all of these, you know, outdoor sports that involve mountains. But sometimes it's really lovely just to rest in the bush or by the beach and not have to exert myself physically. So wherever I can get some peace and quiet, I love it. Yeah, it really depends on what you need it for. It's so right. You know, when you were mentioning rock climbing, I've got a really good friend of mine who loves to to climb and he said he's never been more in the moment than when he's rock climbing. He's like, you can't really think of anything else because you're thinking about the next rock and and holding onto that wall and 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 really sort of problem solving in the moment. He's like, I'm not in my past. I'm not worried about the future. Whereas you know, I think of times where I might be at the beach and you're sitting there on your own, your mind tends to wander, but it might need to in in, in that moment in time for you to process something or to unpack it. So it's a really good response because it's so true. It, it's dependent on, on what your emotional needs or even spiritual needs are at that moment and what what that sort of that setting is going to give to you. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more with that. And 
when it comes to um, like engaging in certain sports, like rock climbing, like you were saying, what your friend is experiencing is a flow state. Mm. So it's like just enough challenge where your mind and your attention is focused and you don't quite engage that flow state when you're just relaxing on the beach, but it gives you a different opportunity to reflect and to be with yourself and still challenge yourself because for many people just sitting with your thoughts and like having to unpack what's going on or really meet that is sometimes the hardest thing to do. So absolutely, like your environment, position in life, how your week is going really influence how you're going to be able to show up for these things as well. Yeah. And isn't it funny how engaging in those kind of activities and prompting those, uh, I guess, situations in your mind, like you said, getting into that flow state there is probably going to be more likely for you to then find other opportunities to get in a flow state elsewhere because you almost know how to unlock that and how that process goes and how you feel. And so having giving yourself those opportunity almost opportunities almost yeah sets your brain up to be able to unlock that in many other aspects of your life, including work. Yeah, absolutely. It's all about training the brain, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, training the brain and the body. (laughs) Yeah, I love it. All right, so uh, let's sort of dive into today and getting to know you a little bit more, Violet. I'd love for you to tell the audience a little bit about who you are, what you do, and your journey to where you are today. Okay, let's see how I can synopse my life (laughs) into a a digestible answer. Um, So my name is Violetta, and um, everyone is more than welcome to call me Violet. I find it's easier that way sometimes, but my full name is Violetta, and I come from an experiential education background in outdoor education specifically, and I was working in that industry for about 10 years before I transitioned into what I do today. So a lot of my work is informed through holistic psychology, mindfulness, and leadership Um, facilitation and education. And I use my skills to help, um, in particular, professional and entrepreneurial women to have a deeper connection with their emotional worlds so that they can really step into that confident and most successful version of themselves in a way that feels authentic to them. And a bit of my story that sort of led me here is my own adverse experiences as a female leader in a male-dominated field and my inability to cope with that. So a part of me was extremely confident. Anyone from the outside would look at me and always, like, that's feedback that I often got is that I'm so confident. And... What I came to learn almost a decade later is that this supposed confidence that people saw in me was actually a mask for a lot of insecurity. And a lot of these qualities about myself, like my sensitivity, that I didn't know how to harness into my professional life. So I always felt like I was like pushing into resistance, pushing into challenges and moving with a lot of grit and force to kind of get to what I want to succeed in my career, to succeed in my life. And that left me completely burnt out. And I had this moment, I was working, I tell this story often, um, I was working in Hong Kong years ago, and it was a pretty toxic environment. 
And our work schedules were just absolutely crazy. You know, 24 hours on, you had like one day off a week. And at the end of this year of working in this environment where I only, not only did I not feel supported, I didn't feel a connection to my colleagues. I didn't have a personal life, but I suppose like not having all of these things led me to a really big burnout and a moment of awareness that the way I was leading myself and my life wasn't working and that I was actually hiding a lot of myself in my job to show up how everyone expected of me, especially as like a feminine female in, in a male dominated field. And I completely lost myself in the process. And then it was a journey of finding myself again, which took probably about two years to kind of get out of like a depression that I that I entered after this job and really rediscover what's important to me and how I can still thrive in my career, support my students, do what I'm passionate about, and really genuinely feel confident. So not only appear confident, but be confident in my emotional state and how I respond to conflict, how I manage other people, how I manage myself. And that sort of led me down this path, um, down this path of psychology and mindfulness and using the skills that I learned in this industry, but in a different way, in a way that's more sustainable to help people actually cultivate a sense of lasting change in their mental state and their emotional state so they can be excited about life again. Yeah. And it's so needed because, you know, when, when I run staff well-being surveys and obviously look into what it is that staff feel like they really need uh, from their leaders but also from the staff they work with. And and a word that you said then really stood out to me was that authentic self. And I think when it comes to leadership quite commonly across a broad range of organisations and fields, it is quite masculine when it comes to the books or the texts or even the studies that you read on effective leadership. And particularly in education, it's a highly emotional and relational field. And what staff want is somebody to connect with in a relationship and with emotions. And when, as you said, we're pushing that to the side to kind of, you know, keep up with the Joneses or, you know, um, be an effective leader, and I say that in in quotation marks, we might actually be missing what it is that actually makes us effective. And that is a connection to ourselves and our emotions and our abilities to be able to connect with the staff that we lead uh, and foster that sense of belonging. So it's, you know, it's it's such a great place to come to in your experience after pushing yourself one way and realising you know, it might even be successful for a hot minute there, but in the long run, it's just not sustainable for us. And it's it's something that we need to rework and revisit, particularly in education. Yeah, absolutely. And I would add that this is something that we don't do consciously, right? It's like, if you ask me then, I thought I was doing it right. Yeah. <laughs> and I was I was ignoring red flags that now in hindsight, there were such red flags, even where... Um, which organizations I decided to give my energy to, how I responded to different people, I justified those red flags because a part of me was aware, a part of me was very self-aware, but a part of me also didn't know what I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And when you aren't shown a different way, or if you're not told that it's 
not going to impact the way people perceive you or your performance to address the so-called like red flags or little resistances we feel, then we see it as a challenge that needs to be overcome and we normalize it as something that is that everyone experiences. Mm. But when we start to actually slow down and acknowledge how we're experiencing the present moment, then we can actually really meet the truth of a situation and decide what changes are needed and whether the way we're living, the way we're leading, the way we're interacting with others is is effective. Like you said, effective leadership, but not only organizational leadership, but self-leadership. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. And and you sort of were talking then about what people are perceiving as normal. And I think what we it's almost like a whole reframe that needs to happen there. It's more common than it is normal, right? As you said, we've sort of had this shift in culture and in lots of organizations, particularly in schools, to think that one way of leading or managing ourselves is normal, but in fact it's just become more common and we're starting to feel more disconnected from ourselves. And as you were talking then, I was like, yeah, I've been where you have too. When I first started leading, I was really data-driven, quite focused on the performance of my team and, you know, quite sort of padded by instructional leadership. So that focus on student results and how they're going in curriculum, uh, when that's just one piece of the puzzle, you know, building in those elements of emotional intelligence is is really important. And I'm really excited to to dive into that a little bit more today, as well as unpack, you know, you, you mentioned red flags in there. So I'll be keen to unpack a little bit about what those red flags might be and how people can self-identify that in, in themselves as well. Because there will be people listening today who aren't leaders, but as you said, who who need to govern a sense of self-leadership and um, and connect to their emotions to do that. All right, so this podcast series has been specifically focused around the multiple dimensions of our well-being. So these eight different codependent dimensions, sorry, include emotional, physical, career, social, spiritual, intellectual, environmental, and financial. But we're mostly focusing on emotional well-being in today's conversation. And ultimately, this domain is your knowledge and skills to identify your personal feelings and the ability to handle and manage those emotions. And when you're emotionally well, you're more capable of processing your emotions using really healthy coping strategies and mechanisms. And you're going to be more likely to see yourself in a more positive light and, of course, be resilient in the face of stress, which is really important for educators (laughs) because uh, our stress is is rising and in some settings it's it's higher than others. Violet, I'm really keen to hear what would you c- consider to be the components of somebody with a really thriving sense of emotional well-being and even is you know your definition of emotional well-being different from the one that I provided? It's a great question. <clears throat> one thing that I would like to contribute is emotional well-being and emotional intelligence are two different things. Mm. So to address your question directly, um, what is like a thriving sense of emotional well-being would be your capacity or an individual's capacity to to move through the many different emotional states without getting stuck in one or the other. So a lot of people 
um, what I notice anyway, when we think of emotional well-being and the things that I've heard or that my clients um, think is that happiness and joy and contentment are what exemplify a successful or a thriving emotional well-being. But it, that's actually not true. It's your ability to move into sadness, into anger, into grief, into uncertainty, back into contentment, back into joy, back into happiness, and giving yourself permission and cultivating a sense of safety to be able to fluidly experience what an entire human experience is made out of. Because we're all living in the 3D plane. So one thing that we can guarantee is that we're going to be challenged, we're going to be hurt, we're going to be sad. And to reject or deny any part of our experience adds to the frustration, adds to the sense of disconnection. And for some people, this struggle to feel a sense of belonging within their own life and within their work. So an individual who thrives in their emotional wellness is able to hold the capacity of all of the emotions that exist. That exist. They're able to notice them, be with them, label them, and practice doing that. Because it sounds so easy to do it, but any human, every human who has experienced sadness, grief, anger, know that it is not easy in practice to be with those emotions. It's our human, our human like um, reaction to move away from pain. So to practice holding that pain is a completely different skill set to learn. And mm -hmm. it's something that needs to be practiced. So I hope that answers your question. It does. It sounds to me it's almost like an acceptance of all of those emotions that sit on the spectrum rather than reacting to an emotion that reacting negatively I mean to an emotion that you know feels like it's negative to us it's just sitting with it as you said moving through trusting that we experience a broad range of emotions and that's okay we can learn from the more challenging emotions or the ones that feel harder and really savor and the ones that really feel good and wonderful yeah yeah and also not being fixated on um, having to understand why we feel a certain way, especially when it comes to those emotions that are a bit harder to feel. There's a really big emphasis on, you know, intellectualizing everything and <laughs> unpacking the story behind every emotion. But the way our emotional landscape works and the way it's connected with our, our nervous system, there are emotions that are like experiences in the moment that we may um, be experiencing that there is no story that we can unpack or connect with. And the more we try to over-intellectualize what we're feeling, then we find ourselves getting stuck and we're fixating on the wrong thing rather than learning the resources and the strategies to help us process it. So not suppressing emotion, but learning to process our emotion through a physical way and a somatic way instead of um, getting stuck on the intellectualization of why am I feeling this way? What's wrong with me and how do I fix it? Yeah, it's really actually it's such a great point that you raise. I think I've probably lived in 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 both experiences where you either push the emotion to the side 
or you become so fixated and almost diagnostic about why that emotion is there. And, you know, this is why, you know, we talk a lot about the balance between traditional psychology and things more aligned. Let's say even for an example, one example with positive psychology, because there's with traditional psychology, some aspects of it, of course, can be quite focused on what's wrong with you. Whereas when you move into these other planes and fields around positive psychology and self-awareness and emotional intelligence, it's around those positive interventions and acceptance and gratitude and and all of the other things that add to that. And, you know, I definitely have been in a space where I fixated so much on what's wrong with me and why. And and many people listening might too be be in that space, particularly as you begin your journey to to developing yourself and getting in touch with your emotions. I think that's, you know, for many people quite a common symptom. It is so common. And whoever can resonate with that, you are absolutely not alone. I have been there and I still find myself swinging back to that sometimes. And that's the human experience. The practice is catching yourself. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I would like to add to what you said, Adrian, which you articulated it so beautifully, is that depending on your history, that's what's going to, I guess, like impact which different methodologies are going to work for you. And from my experience, we can have all of them. Mm-hmm. And they all serve a purpose. One isn't better than the other. One isn't right or wrong than the other. It's right place, right time, right tool. And totally. what, what may have worked for me 10 years ago, maybe I maybe I needed to be in my cognitive brain. Maybe I really needed to understand the story because that's what I was capable of in that moment because I didn't have the resources or the support or the guidance to do it differently. And that as I open myself up to new experiences and to new knowledge, then I am able to take new tools, get new information and try different ways. And for me anyway, and I think, um, well, I know everyone, but maybe not everyone would admit it. It's a lifelong journey. It's a lifelong journey of coming to wholeness. It's a lifelong practice of practicing coming back home, practicing coming back home, because inevitably life is going to have challenges. We're going to be challenged. That is an inevitability. Mm. So practicing being with it, however it looks like throughout our life, that's where we can continue to grow and in a sustainable way and to really find wholeness in our life. Yeah, and I love that idea because, as you said, there's no one size fits all. So for somebody who's beginning to sort of dabble in or consider or already is in that realm of seeking support, perhaps with a counsellor or a psychologist, um, you know, that might be working for them right now. But for some people, they they might not be feeling that connection to that kind of therapy. And I always say to my not only my one-on-one clients, but when I'm presenting in a school, feel free to experiment with the array of therapies that are available to you and different practitioners because everything offers something different. And, you know, I I engage with uh, CBT, so cognitive behavioral therapy for 12 years, and it worked marvelously. And then I got to a point where it no longer seemed to be serving me in the way that I needed. Like you said, awareness had opened up a little bit more. I was ready for something different. 
so I could move in and started to resonate more with things like positive psychology and even hypnotherapy and um, kinesiology, very, very sort of what's considered quite alternative. But I couldn't have started there. I couldn't have. But I know plenty of clients who come to me who would much prefer to go to hypnotherapy than to a psychologist. So it really depends on the personality. And as you said, you know, the level of challenge that we're going through and our life experience too. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a good invitation here is to notice that within yourself, like notice which types of support you're um, more for and more against and question why that is. Because rejecting anything adds to our emotional distress. And we don't need to engage in everything, but we're able as humans to learn to have, um, to cultivate an acceptance and not be, I suppose, judgmental. Because I know, especially in the psychology field, like everyone thinks that their way is the best way, right? (laughs) When you're training in something for 20 years, when you have certain life experiences, sometimes I catch myself, I'm like, well, of course, this is the best way. (laughs) Of course, this is going to work for you because I'm human. And I need to remind myself that it's effective, it's proven, and there are other ways people can go about achieving the things that they really want to achieve in themselves. Mm -hmm. So just noticing how we feel about different modalities. And if we really feel a resistance to alternative therapies, why? What's the belief there? Why are we so against it? Why aren't we opening to trying it? Mm -hmm. That's right. It's so interesting. And again, that's developing that level of (laughs) self-awareness and self-reflection. And, you know, that can also take time. We've got to be ready for that too. Oh, yeah, (laughs) definitely. (laughs) What are some common signs or symptoms that you might see in people that you're working with that perhaps their emotional well-being might require their focus or attention? And as, or as you talked about, maybe even some of those red flags that you mentioned before. Mm. This is a great question, and I'm just going to take a moment to consider which angle I want to take and answer and get, because there's a few different ways I can answer this question. Can you repeat it to me one more time? So it's, what are some common signs or symptoms that you might see in people that you're working with or clients that their emotional well-being might require their attention? Strong emotions is one of them. So finding yourself getting stuck in certain emotional patterns that aren't serving you. So if we're feeling a sense of joy and contentment, majority of the time, amazing. We don't need to cons- we don't need to change that. It's working for us. But if we find ourselves getting stuck in emotions or reactions that we see and we can identify aren't working for us, that maybe we're noticing patterns that we're always stuck in conflict or we're always... Um, noticing ourselves judging other people or judging ourselves. We notice our own self-doubt, own self-criticism. We notice ourselves being really angry and maybe we don't know why. Maybe, yeah, really just, I suppose, not feeling in control of your emotions, not feeling like, you know, like you, I guess, sort of feeling like they're controlling you is a good way I would put it. And a lot of my clients come to me um, because they want to develop a deeper sense of contentment and they do feel stuck in like 
a different baseline of emotional patterns. And when we unpack that, there's so many different layers underneath the surface that we go over. But the consensus is, is that learning to be fluid with them. So understanding where certain emotional patterns come from, certain emotional reactions, and uh, and understanding how we can resource ourselves or what we can do to start to shift out of it so they're not our baseline. So mm. that we feel more clear-headed, we feel more in control of our emotions, and when we get triggered, because we all do and we will, even with this work, I still get triggered, but my triggers don't rule me anymore i'm able to notice the trigger and i get faster and faster at cor correcting my emotional response and really noticing where i have the control and where i have the power in the situation instead of letting a situation have power over me to where i feel like i don't have any choices so i think a big part of developing your emotional awareness and your emotional intelligence is teaching yourself through different modalities that you actually have choice over the reaction yeah it's um as you were talking another thing I thought about too was I remember at the very beginning of my journey I almost had only one default emotion and that was anger <laughs> and that was something that you know to everything I just became angry so it wasn't like I was ever sad one minute but then angry the next or disappointed and then sometimes angry it was like everything I was angry towards and then that was where I started to realize that, you know, even instead of grieving, I was becoming angry, um, that something was wrong here. I, For me at that time, I wasn't actually effectively able to process or manage or even express the emotions. So then the default was was often anger. And like you were saying before, some for some people it might be judgment. Um, for some people, it might be sadness. That's just the default that they go to for a lot of their experiences in life. And that could be another sign that, you know, really working on processing what it is that you're actually feeling versus what you think you're feeling um, is, is a really helpful process. Yeah. And we are emotional beings who think, not thinking be beings who feel. Mm. And our emotional experiences are live in our body. All of the experiences we've had throughout our life live in our body. And it is possible to become addicted to certain emotions and to become stuck in that state. Mm -hmm. And it's also possible to shift that, to create a new baseline, a new normal for how you experience yourself, others, your work, the world around you. And... Oh, I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a beautiful one. <laughs> just lost my, it'll come back to me, but let's it will. if it comes up, if it comes back, I'll, I'll come back to it. <laughs> you can keep going. Well, alongside working with your clients to develop their emotional well-being, you have a lot of experience working with leaders and individuals to develop their emotional intelligence. And you and you briefly touched on this before. Can you share with the audience a bit about what emotional intelligence is and its components? Sure. Emotional intelligence at its core is being able to notice your emotional state being able to have the words for it, 
because believe it or not, a lot of us have a very limited capacity about our emotional world. And this is something I'm still increasingly learning vocabulary for because there's a whole list of big emotional, you know, big words for to describe emotions. But when you ask most people, there'll be like five predominant ones that we name that we're feeling, but there's a lot beneath the surface when it comes to how we're actually experiencing the moment and how we can describe that experience. So firstly, emotional intelligence is developing your capacity to notice your emotions, to be able to navigate them, manage them, and safely move through them. And also in turn, noticing it in other people. So not being reactive to other people, but developing by developing your own emotional awareness, you're able to develop your social awareness, your social emotional awareness. And with that comes empathy. So being able to empathize with other people and have successful connected relationships, especially as a leader, having successful communication that all falls under emotional intelligence. Mm, This is a big thing that I'll work with school leaders on is effective leadership a large chunk of that in the work that we do is around developing emotional intelligence and that starts with self-awareness um, and you can't really start anywhere else but there because you have to be able to recognize it in yourself to be able to see it in others and to recognize that where they're at is different from where you're at <laughs> and it's all dependent on their journey and their experiences and their past leadership their past school uh, and it really helps us to not take it so personally, but also, as you said, be able to adjust and adapt the way we lead to suit the very different (laughs) spectrum of people that we work with because we can't just lead one way. We really have to be adaptable. And particularly uh, when emotions are high in our staff, which they very commonly are in schools, we really have to be able to sit with that person where they're at um, and and help them to, I guess, rebalance or or come back to a sort of a sense of more calm and that their authentic selves. Uh, but that really requires us to be able to do that to some degree as well. And we don't have to be perfect at it. By no means do I think that I am. But just that knowledge and awareness of of, of where people are and can be is so important as a leader. I think that it's almost like the most essential skill. <laughs> Yeah, it's the foundation of all types of leadership. It's the foundation of having positive change that ripples outward into the world. And one thing that you said, Adrian, that I'd like to highlight is you said that you don't think you're perfect at it. And that in itself is emotional intelligence because being able to course correct and apologize takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of awareness and an extreme amount of vulnerability to be in a situation where in hindsight you realize that perhaps you were you were wrong or you overreacted and maybe um, some of your actions or words hurt someone and to be able to come together to have a resolution and to smooth things over without um, ghosting people or holding grudges and bringing that conflict with you into the rest of your life and into years to come Mm. and i and i think a good Um, Or one of the more unspoken examples of what emotional intelligence is or can become is 
developing the capacity to truly listen, to truly listen to yourself, but also are you able to be in front of others and see what's in front of you and to listen to them and to identify the meaning or the emotion behind the words, to identify the needs behind the words, because we are all pretty egocentric as people. You know, we spend the most time with ourselves in our own heads. And it's really easy to look through the lens of what we want, what we believe, what we need. But emotional intelligence, the more you focus on developing it, will give you this beautiful capacity to like an enhanced level of listening. And the better listener you become, the deeper your connections are. And the deep, the more you're able to influence a situation or to have um, conversations that may be really difficult because you're able to separate yourself from it. You're not thinking in the moment of talking to someone um, that you know better. You're not thinking that you have the answer for them and you're not trying to persuade them to see you in a certain way and to almost like maybe manipulate them to perceive you in a certain way. You're able to separate yourself from it entirely and just be objective and be present and feel centered within yourself and not feel threatened by the situation either. I think a lot of a lot of the time especially in my in my own experiences when I came into conflict or experienced really high and aroused emotions at work. Um I come from education as well, so you're constantly with people, you're constantly with students, colleagues, you know, the whole works. Everyone listening can relate to this, but the hardest part was not taking things personally for me. And now I don't. Now I'm able to separate myself. But that took years because I needed to learn and unpack why I take things personally or why um, why I'm threatened in different ways. And a lot of the time it reflected in how I reacted. And maybe I didn't react externally to where other people see, saw it or like I was misbehaving. But how did I react in my mind? What did I say about the other person in that moment? And how do I speak about myself? It almost sits on a continuum, doesn't it, Violet? Like you'll, I feel, I feel like I'm kind of still in that journey. And like you said, we're probably in it for a, a really long time. And I think as I transitioned into running a business versus actually being in a school, you move through it in a different way then because you're almost a different person. You're this shapeshifter. You come from being a school leader and then you're out and all of a sudden you're running a business. So you kind of have to move through all of that again. But um, yeah, it's that your behavior might reflect that you feel or think one way, but your your mind still hasn't caught up to that. And I feel like that next part on the continuum is then actually being able to uh, accept that, yeah, people will have differing opinions of your views of you. Uh, and, um, you know, that's okay. That, that's not something that you necessarily have to react to. And, and another thing you talked about was that vulnerability and, and, and really sort of owning situations and the amount of meetings that I called where I didn't think a meeting had gone well. So the next morning's back in, I'm like, I'm really sorry. I have a feeling this might have confused you more or stressed you out more. Uh, you know, a lot, a lot of the time it was interesting because some people would be like, oh, thank you. Like, that was really nice that you did that. And others would be like, I, I wasn't even worried about that. But it was, it's just so great and humbling to be able to authentically communicate that you might have made a mistake or miscommunicated 
and you apologize, but then it's it's also a great opportunity to see that maybe you were overthinking that situation and for some of your staff it didn't actually rub them the wrong way. And for some it might have and just you chatting to them um, has allowed them to connect with you. Um, so there's just so much value in those conversations that I think it's it's worth dabbling into them rather than avoiding them entirely. Yeah, and how funny that we like that many people don't notice what we notice, right? It's like you can be obsessing over the way you said something and potentially offending someone and half the room didn't notice. And maybe people notice, but they don't care as much, but it keeps you up at night. (laughs) So being able, yeah, like being able to talk yourself off that ledge and like maintain a different perspective or even opening the question like, hey, you know, like I noticed this in the meeting yesterday and it's constantly in my head can I just check in with you if everyone, how everyone is feeling about it? And if you have any concerns, like come speak to me, want to make sure that everything feels complete, like this, that this meeting feels complete and there's nothing left unsaid, you know, just like checking in also Mm -hmm. instead of sitting in your own thoughts, but having the, I suppose, like strength to actually ask, you know, like asking rather than assume. Totally. And that's totally what I did so many times was just the stream, like that meeting went so terribly yesterday. I'm so sorry. And then I would go off on this big jumble. And at the end, they go, it wasn't terrible. Bill, what are you talking <laughs> about? <laughs> Bill, you did great. You're a superstar. I was like, oh, yeah, I probably should have just asked how everyone was after the meeting or how they found it rather than launching into my monologue about how sorry I am. Yeah, how so- and <laughs> how terrible I am. <laughs> but I needed that in order to go, hmm. The person who told me that the meeting didn't go well, I think that they felt like it didn't go well, but everybody else was fine. And so I then learned about that other person. So, you know, I think I'm far enough in my journey to be able to, uh, you know, see the good in 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 all of those challenging uh, experiences and, and, and learn from it. But it's just so funny. And I think, as you said, coming back to what you said in the beginning, it's being able to sit with that and accept it and move through it rather than attached to it Um, and laugh about it like I do now (laughs) yeah and like to and sometimes you may offend someone or sometimes it might be like an irreparable situation and like can you find acceptance in it yeah that's right you know instead of bringing it with you for years to come can you still find acceptance with it because we're we're imperfect Mm, and accepting that imperfection is a practice and a separate journey in itself as well yeah so true How do you think we can develop or grow our emotional intelligence? Because I'm a firm believer that we definitely can develop it. (laughs) We have some good strategies around that. We absolutely can. And um, most people come, you know, will have different levels of their emotional intelligence. And I don't think there's exact data or science as to why this is. Like naturally, some people's predisposition is to be more introspective and some are more extrospective or like analyze the outside world more than looking inward. But we can all practice developing our language for emotions, which in turn impacts our ability or um our desire to seek information, how we can then manage our emotions and navigate them and regulate them. Um, So some strategies for that, that I would recommend to start off if you're noticing yourself wanting to 
explore your emotional world more. Maybe you you haven't that much yet, or maybe you're well into your personal development journey. This is for everyone. The key is to cultivate curiosity and follow that curiosity. I think as adults, you know, especially working with students, they ask so many questions and they don't care if they sound stupid. They don't care if their question is stupid. They have a natural, natural curiosity about them that I think as adults we lose. But in order to create any type of change, we have to be able to reconnect with a beginner's mind and that curiosity. So a good place to start to have like a more tangible I suppose, like um, guidance for people to work with. I would invite you to consider the types of thoughts ruminating in your mind and the sensations in your body that follow. And keep it a personal practice. So what am I thinking about this person? What do I think about myself? What am I making it mean? And what sensations are manifesting in my physical body? Because emotions don't, they're not a cognitive thing. They're a somatic experience. And emotions from like a chemical perspective, a biology perspective, last about 90 seconds. So from initial trigger, it's about 90 seconds that we're feeling the emotion of that situation. So then the question is, why do we still feel triggered by someone or something or a thought years later. It's because the memory is in our emotional body and different things can trigger us off that we don't even have conscious awareness about. Maybe it's the smell that we're, we're walking on the street and a smell reminds us of something that we don't have any aware, like cognitive conscious awareness of. Maybe it's someone looks familiar or we hear something on the radio. Maybe there's a song in the background and it triggers our emotional body. So the more we can notice the sensations that come up within us and also the thoughts ruminating, then we can really interestingly and curiously start to ask more questions and seek the information that's going to help us uniquely. And I think yeah. for some people listening, if they're like, ooh, I feel like that is something that I couldn't do myself I think that's a real nod to seeking the support of somebody like you Violet or, or working with a practitioner because sometimes when we just talk through our experiences of the week or the month or the day they can then pick a moment where they go oh you know I saw a shift in her body language or the way she tensed her face up for that or when I asked a question how she responded you know my psychologist used to be brilliant at doing that um, she would ask me a question and I would answer and then she'd come back and say, when you answered that, Adrian, you did this, why? <laughs> and I'd go, well. <laughs> and so um, for those people who go, oh, I don't really feel like I'm at the place to be able to be curious myself, it's certainly a nod to seeking somebody to be able to support you to do that. And they are brilliant at at supporting that process. Yeah. And depending who you go to, um, one of the fears, the most common fears that my clients have before beginning working with me is they're afraid of like what they're going to find. 
And the interesting thing when working with the emotional body is that you don't need to go into the narrative. Contrary to common belief, there are a lot of different practices and methods that still engage your cognitive brain without requiring you to like go back to a moment when you were nine years old and experience this event that like left this mark. Sometimes that's helpful, but especially when we're starting out, we don't need to do that mm. at all. And it's less scary than it seems. And oftentimes who you're working with can help you stay in the safe stone, stay in the moment, because we want to keep looking towards the future. And sometimes it's helpful to look into the past to get some understanding about ourselves, but we don't need to unpack every single wound that we've experienced. We can actually just work with our current state and look forward. Yeah, which what is it is, which is awesome. <laughs> I, I agree. The last practitioner I worked with who was mostly hypnotherapy based, that was his jam. He wasn't into the context or the situation or unpacking the past. He was just like, where are you at now and where do you want to be? And and that was the space that we worked in. So as I'd sort of go, well, I think, you know, I, I do this because he was like, no, 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 no. I want to refocus the mindset. Um, And, you know, as we've talked about before, there's that uh, very important balance for some people to have that, you know, both sides of it. But for others, as you said, who aren't ready for that yet, um, communicating that to the therapist or the practitioner that you're working with uh, is a way to move forward in, 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 in a modality that doesn't feel threatening to you. Yeah. And I would say if you're listening to this podcast, you're ready. You're ready. <laughs> like you, you, you have the interest, you have the awareness to be here. You're yeah. in these conversations, which means there's a part of you that's curious about it. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and we can practice following that curiosity and seeing where it leads us. Yeah. You, you've, you've nodded to already and started to tap into uh, our physical body and and really connecting with our biology and our physiology. And I know that you work with mostly leaders to to help them tap into that in order to take control of their emotional state and, and sense. And that's so important for leaders and, and those working in education in particular. But how can we connect with our physical selves more in order to become more attuned with our emotional well-being or even other dimensions of our wellness? How can we connect with our emotional selves more? Our physical selves our more. Our physical selves more. To tap into those emotions as you've, you know, it's so important to link the two. I would invite everyone listening to start with just one minute a day. One minute a day of sitting in stillness and just noticing what comes up. You can call this a meditation. You don't have to. You don't need to focus your attention on anything. But simply starting to just notice the quality of your thoughts and the sensations that arise when you're not constantly in motion. So we all live such busy lives, right? It's a part of being a leader, it's a part of being successful. We have a lot of things on our plate and we like to do a lot of things. We like to be busy and that's okay. But can we invite just one minute of stillness and see what comes up and get curious about that? You may be surprised what you find. A lot of people fear that, you know, these horrible memories or things will start to come up. And a lot of the time that doesn't happen. But the more we can 
label these sensations, you know, and I can give an example right now, like noticing how my feet are responding, the temperature, my cheeks are a bit warm as I'm speaking to you. I keep fiddling with my air con behind me <laughs> and I'm noticing that my heart rate is normal. It's not beating too quick. It's I'm feeling quite, you know, quite myself and just being with these sensations for one minute a day and noticing the quality of your thoughts is an amazing place to start reconnecting with your physical body because we tend to over intellectualize everything and that's partly because that's the predominant value that society has cultivated in us from a very young age and it's also partly because it's a self-defense mechanism because it's safer to be in the mind and in the thoughts and the brain is a natural storytelling machine it loves a complete story about anything and guess what it does not have to be true so the mind will always figure out a reason, an explanation, a judgment, a criticism as to why something happened, and it doesn't have to be true. But creating that loop in the story, even if it's not true, gives us a sense of control, gives us a sense of safety. So simply noticing the quality of our thoughts, where do our thoughts go to when we're not focusing our attention on the responsibilities and tasks in front of us? That is a really amazing place to start. Mm, I like that. And so easy to be able to do, as you said, that I was chickening into my body going, I need to take my shoes off my feet. <laughs> it's too tight down here. <laughs> and yeah. it's, it's such an important reminder too to go, well, you know, why am I feeling that way? Um, how is that restricting me in any way or making me feel great? Whatever it might be. I love that. I would invite even a different question to ask here instead of why. With my clients, we focus on how. How am I feeling? The why so much doesn't matter sometimes, but if you can identify how you are experiencing something, then you're not in the story of it. So you're able to make a conscious decision on what needs to change. And especially in the in the school system, and I think maybe you'll appreciate this example. Unfortunately, society, the way our school systems run, cut us off from our natural intuition and connection to our physical bodies because we're expected to um, adapt to a certain way of sitting, a certain way of listening. And very few schools offer the opportunity for students to um, connect with how they are experiencing the moment because they need to morph themselves into achieving like designated you know, assignments and tasks and things like that. And a lot of the time when I was working with school leaders and students, teachers would come up to me when I would take them overseas on expeditions. We would be like in Thailand, Peru, all these interesting places. And I took a lot of Australian schools out and teachers as well um, through this organization I used to work for. But teachers would come up to me and be like, oh, you have to watch out for this student. He's the worst. He's the worst or she's the worst. You know, they're so misbehaved. They don't listen. And lo and behold, they were always the star student. Oh, yeah. All I of my on camps. Every time yeah. we went on camps, the more tricky kids were, yeah, shining yeah. stars on camp. <laughs> yeah, because they were able to express themselves in a different way. Yeah. So the way that society, I suppose, um, disconnects us is through these like seemingly harmless 
invitations or sentences, like even from a young age, you know, like finish all of your food. They're starving kids in Africa. So we're forcing ourselves to eat, to finish the plate and not listening to whether we are full. Or in school, you raise your hand and you ask to use the restroom. The teacher allows you to go. You go to the bathroom. You come back and you realize that you have to go again. Don't know what happened with that student, but happens all the time. They want to go back. And the teacher automatically assumes that they're misbehaving or doing something sneaky or don't want to be in class. And then saying no sometimes can promote confusion, especially at such a young age, then you're questioning, well, do I need to go to the bathroom? Am I making it up? Am I misbehaving? Or do I just simply need to go to the bathroom and it's not fitting in this context? So asking how I'm experiencing this in my body is, is I think, more valuable than asking why. Mm, I like that. Yeah, the how as opposed, and again, that's not fixating on the story. All right, so Violet, how do you support your clients or maybe somebody who's interested in working with you who's listening today? How do you support them to tend to their emotional well-being and probably indeed other dimensions because they're all <laughs> they're all really interrelated, but so that they can progress towards their goals and feel better? There's no one answer for this because it's an individualized process. So like we talked about in the beginning of our conversation, different things will work for different people and an amazing tool used at the wrong time is not going to work for you. But there's so many amazing tools out there. And this is why it's so valuable to work with a trained professional to help kind of assess where you are and what you're actually needing so that you can empower yourself to make the changes and um, cater to your emotional world in a way that is suitable for you. So some people may say, and I'm also a meditation teacher, meditation and breathwork. So some people may say, well, meditate. It's great for regulating your emotions. But meditating when you're furious is <laughs> not going to work. Try, try to make me sit down when I'm furious and tell me to meditate for five minutes and breathe. Like it's, it's not going to work. And in that moment, what I actually need is maybe to go for a brisk walk. So this is why it's helpful to work with someone that can help you get to know your own body and get to know the different activations that you experience throughout your day, throughout your life, and what is going to be most useful for you. And mm-hmm. I love meditation. I teach it. But it's not always what I recommend. Yeah, I so, agree. So I would, I would come back again to noticing how. And doing an inventory of the things that you do in your life that you notice make you feel emotionally vital, make you feel grounded and in control and connected and calm. And write down a list of all of the places or people or activities that help you to come back to center. And then you can have your list. And over time, when you are in different levels of your um, like emotional activation, it's going to be really hard to look at that list at first and know what's going to help you in that moment. But over time, the more the deeper your connection is with yourself and the more intimacy you build with your own body and with your own systems and reactions and responses, you'll be able to very quickly know what you need in the moment. 
Mm-hmm. And, need, and needs are a funny thing because you see online all the time, identify your needs and then you'll know what to do. But at first, it's for many people, we don't know what our needs are. So how are we supposed to meet our needs if we can't, if we can't identify them, if we've never had that modeled for us? So that it can also be another place to start is really noticing what you feel is missing and increasing your education about what needs actually are. Yeah, it it really sounds to me like you're somebody who helps your client find their unique way and personalizes their approach for them, which when it comes to our emotion, there's no cut and paste <laughs> copy template here. It's um it's really important that we, as you said, recognize first our, our own emotions and then be able to process what it is that we need and then how we get there for ourselves. And and you sound like an amazing guide for that journey thank you thank you all right Violet we see a number of quotes circulating on social media showcasing something very thought-provoking or inspiring from thought leaders across the globe and throughout time if a quote from you was circulating on the topic of health well-being or leadership what would it say you know when you shared this with me before I was like, I'm going to think of an answer. And then now I just thought of just do it. And I realized that's Nike. So I can't use that one. (laughs) (laughs) So I I can't use that quote. Um, But I'm going to respectfully say that I'm going to allow other people to decide what bits of information I share is appropriate for that time. Mm -hmm. Because I don't know, I feel like if you're if you're thinking of your own quote, and like deeming it important, then it's kind of missing the point of like what other people need. I'm like, <laughs> what's like socially, like, yeah, like what's socially relevant. So I'd be really curious. I love to... that answer. That's been my favorite answer to that question so far. I'm, I'm going to just like, you decide, it maybe it's yeah. you decide. <laughs> you, you tell me how amazing and wise I am. I'll wait. <laughs> Somebody else do the quote grab, please. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to have to. Oh, that's that. so good. All right. Well, we'll do the quote grab from the episode then. Okay. So <laughs> I like like it you I like that you decide choose your own adventure exactly that's what I always encourage choose your own adventure that's right <laughs> this podcast is aptly titled well-led school so it's a play on words to reflect those schools who lead with well-being in mind what is one thing that you think schools or leaders can do to prioritize well-being that would make the biggest difference in their setting prioritize play allow yourself to play more and practice not taking life and everything so seriously and play is very closely linked to curiosity a theme that's come up in this conversation and another like you'll see your students playing all the time and as an adult can you cultivate that play can you cultivate that same playfulness because when we're in a state of play and enthusiasm and openness it's much easier to communicate and connect with others and to be able to lead in a way that's from a heart-centered place and more open and welcoming as opposed to rigid and kind of, you know, like following a a tick list of what a leader is supposed to do, look like, and be. Mm -hmm. So I think play more in school and leadership in life. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think with play, we also fail forwards a bit like we're not afraid to make mistakes or or fail at something because we're just playing so I think it's it's definitely a it's it is an awesome way to experiment 
Yeah. Oh, it's been However, so great chatting with you today, Violet. Where can our audience find and connect with you if they're interested in learning more and or working with you as leaders or a star? Thank you for that. It's been a pleasure being on. I love that we connected in our own. We're part of the same business group. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that we found each other through that because James is awesome. But <laughs> you can connect with me either through Instagram at expand and impact. So my name is Violetta and I am the founder of expand and impact and or LinkedIn. If that's more your jam, Violetta Znarkowski. I'm sure Adrian will put my um, long Polish name in the show notes. <laughs> and if you are looking for clarity to have, I guess, a deeper sense of like what you're needing in a moment, especially when you're feeling really busy or in conflict, I have a free boundaries visualization for you to use. So you can also get that. And then you'll be subscribed to my mailing list. That's another good way to connect. I don't send out emails often, but every once in a while, some fun things come through. So that is the best way to connect. I love you. I love that. Thank you so much. It's been so wonderful to chat. I'm sure our audience got a lot out of hearing what you had to say. Uh, Thank you again. And we'll have to probably have you come back on another time to talk more about this. It's been amazing. That'd be awesome. I would love that. Thanks so much for (laughs) having me. so much. Thank you so much for tuning in today. As always, my team has put together the show notes, which can be found wherever you're listening to this podcast with easy to access links for connecting with Violetta. If you're keen to get on top of your overall well-being, I recently launched a self-paced online course, A Roadmap to Better Wellbeing, which takes participants on a journey of understanding stress from a multidimensional perspective and will guide them through creating their own pathway to well-being. Throughout the modules, you'll find videos, short activities and resources with simple, easy-to-implement strategies that you can incorporate into your personal and professional life, as well as ideas to share and practice with students. Learn more and register at adrianhornby.com.au forward slash wellbeing hyphen course. Or again, check out the show notes for quick access today. Thanks so much for listening to Well-Led Schools. I look forward to connecting with you at adriannehornby.com.au. Here you can get in contact with me, learn more about my approach and join my mailing list. I'm Adrienne Hornby. Thanks again for your time and stay well.